Luke's purpose in writing is to accurately document God's plan executed by the Holy Spirit's power through Jesus and the continued work of Jesus through his people. The primary message is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Nobody's beyond the embrace of his love. It was written to Theopolis, a noble Gentile official, and the theme of all preaching in Acts is the risen Christ. And the other night, Lori and I re-watched that movie, Paul, an Apostle of Christ. And I was reminded, um, you know, we, we look at our government, and I, I've been getting emails and calls about things going on, bills that are on the uh, congressional floor uh, that are taking away gun rights, uh, that trying to limit the rights of people, putting things forward for abortion, all these things that people are upset about. And as I was watching that movie, which they tried to accurately document historically, it's kind of like a historical novel, um, they were burning Christians on poles in Rome as street lamps. They were taking Christians and throwing them to animals in Nero's circus. And it's one thing to read about it or to think about it from a historical perspective, but to see it portrayed by people who were pretty good actors, you know, portraying what it might have been like to be in that jail cell awaiting to be thrown to the animals. It's very sobering. It made me think of the guys over in uh, the Middle East who were beheaded for following Jesus. What it must have been like to kneel down and have them say, will you confess Allah? No, we will not. And they beheaded them. And there's this one scene where Luke is in there and he's about to be thrown out there. And he says to everybody, listen, gather around, gather around. And he says, the pain that you are going to feel is going to be very temporary and short. And it's going to be far outweighed by what's on the other side. And the reality of what he said is, is true. And so when we live our lives, is what God wrote about through guys like Luke and others in the Bible really impacting us in the way we live our lives? That's why Luke writes what he wrote to Theophilus. So Theophilus would have a full account of everything that happened and have it impact his life. And he divides Luke into six sections. And at the end of every section, he, he kind of talks about the Word of God increasing, the church increasing and multiplying, and he just alternates back and forth between the church and Word, almost conflating those two together. And they are together because the church's responsibility is to preach the Word. And we are the church. He's not talking about a church building. He's talking about the people who are the church. And in Acts 1, 1 through 11, we saw God call his followers to teach his message, which was repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. To teach his priority, which was the kingdom of God above every other priority. To trust his power that he had not yet given at that moment. It was the Holy Spirit. And to follow his plan. His strategy was to start local in Jerusalem and go. And we see that played out in uh, the gospel going forward in the way Luke wrote. He wrote about it going to Jerusalem. 3,000 people following Christ at the preaching of the gospel. We see it going to Samaria, chapter 8. 
We see over in um, chapter 10, Gentiles, a Roman centurion. And we see ultimately Paul taking the gospel to Rome at the end of the chapter, preaching without hindrance. That's the plan of God. And then last week, we, we saw how God raised up a man named Matthias to use him to be one of the 12 big A apostles that were uniquely called to preach on the day of Pentecost with 120 other believers. But this group, these 12 apostles were unique. They had unique qualifications to be that apostle. They had to have been with Jesus from the beginning of his baptism. They had to have seen the resurrection and they had to have what? Been personally chosen by him. The 11 already were. He chose them. But now Matthias had to be chosen. And we saw last week how they cast lots. After this, you never see lots again. But we saw in God choosing him that God's men, first of all, followed Jesus with an abiding love. That abiding love means a walking with him in such a way that you're obedient to what you believe he wants you to do. You're obedient. And we saw them going back to Jerusalem, which was the very place Jesus was crucified. That's what made that hard. Think about that. They scattered. Then Jesus taught them for 40 days. He says, oh, now I want you to go back to Jerusalem. During the feast, all these Jewish people are there. And they are considered outlaws, basically. And they go back there. And they didn't just stay in a room, hunkered down. They went back and forth to the temple. The house of the Lord is what it was called. They went back and forth to the temple, probably to the southern steps. They were praying and praising and teaching there. There wasn't 120 people in a room. I want you to imagine if we had 120 people in a room like this. Their rooms didn't look like this. So there was the 12 apostles, the mother of Jesus, Mary, some other women, Cleopas, Salome, and the brothers of Jesus. And we saw that God's man follows Jesus with an abiding love. They obeyed. Second, we saw God's man sees circumstances through a scriptural lens. And we saw Peter for the first time stand up, taking them back to scripture saying, hey, it had to be like this. It was in scripture. Remember, he told them that. Judas was part of God's redemption, redemptive plan. His share in the ministry was to be the betrayer. And then we saw God's man is chosen and called to serve a sovereign Lord. Verses 21 to 26. And Matthias was chosen. He was brought into the 12 sovereignly by God to be one of the people that would preach on the day of Pentecost. Well, I don't know if you guys have grandkids and your children did a big reveal for the gender, um, whether it was a boy, girl, binary, whatever, um, they, who, you know, I mean, today it could be anything, but that's something that we never did when I had my oldest kids. We didn't do a gender reveal. We just had a baby. <laughs> I mean, we had a baby and we went in, we, you know, you know, we didn't even know what it was going to be till the day we went into room and it popped out whoa it's a girl whoa it's a boy congratulations now people know ahead of time and they want everybody to know what it is so they can get them gifts that match what the baby is but i was thinking about that that reveal 
And people are trying to outdo themselves now, so much so that in one gender reveal, one, I think, lady ended up dying or a guest died because of the pyrotechnics. Did you remember hearing that? It was so crazy. Yeah, they, they died doing a gender reveal. And so they, everybody's always trying to do this big gender reveal. Well, what we got today in Acts chapter 2, we see God do something that had never been done before in the history of Israel. And it wasn't just the languages themselves. It's what the languages conveyed. It was a supernatural event which only could have come from God. And God wanted His stamp on this. It was a very significant event that was exactly timed to coincide with Pentecost and the Feast of the Harvest for a reason. And so God's timetable is not random. God is very precise. Why? Because whose story is it? It's His story. He's unfolding it. So He knew what He was doing. And so on Pentecost, which was the... The, the second feast, first feast was what? Passover and unleavened bread. <clears throat> On that feast, and it was called the, the feast of, it was the, uh, yeah, the feast of unleavened bread and Passover. It was also, that was really the barley harvest when they did that one. This second feast is the feast of harvest, the feast of weeks. It's seven weeks after the feast of unleavened bread. And it's interesting how God did that on that time. But in this, Luke, by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's direction, memorialized the birth of the church this way. By revealing one, it was a supernatural reveal. God uh, memorialized this birth with a supernatural revealing. It was something that had God's fingerprint on it. Second, we see a senseless response from people. And by that, when it happened, the people are like hearing all these people speak in languages, right? And they go, they're drunk. Now getting drunk doesn't give you an unbelievable ability to speak a language you've never studied. I don't know anybody that's ever had that happen. They get drunk and all of a sudden they can speak a language they've never studied. That's a stupid thing to say. You may not be able to understand it. But... No, they're, they, they just gibberish, but that, I mean, they can't speak a known language just because they get drunk. So their response is senseless. It makes no sense. But they're trying to make sense out of what's happening. And so the third thing we see is a scriptural reminder from Peter. Again, where does he take them? To the text. Where did Jesus always take them? To the text. Anytime you see something in Scripture or something happening that you can't explain, you go back to the text of the Old Testament. What do you think Jesus spent 40 days teaching the disciples? How did they know? How did Peter know to go back to Joel? Remember what happened on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? Luke wrote about it when Luke was writing that these two Disciples were walking down the road and they were with Jesus. They didn't recognize Him. And where did He start? With Moses and the prophets. And He revealed what? All about Himself in the Old Testament. And guess what? In the passage that Peter mentions, it's about Christ too. 
And we're going to see that today. So a supernatural reveal, a senseless response, and a scriptural reminder. So let's read the text, starting in verse 2. I mean, chapter 2, verse 1. And then we're going to take a look at these. And we will get into the whole languages and tongues thing pretty quickly here. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like, you might want to underline like, because it's not a wind, it's like a wind, like a whirlwind, a tornado, that kind of a sound. Like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire, again, another metaphor, it says, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues. Really, that is better translated languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. Why? They hear their sound They were drawn to it just in the same way we would. If we heard this unbelievable uh, sound outside of a whirling wind, we would be drawn to it just like they were. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his what? His own language. This is a known language these men are speaking. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not? All these who are speaking Galileans? Now that's a, a, that's a cut right there. Basically in our vernacular, are these not uneducated backwoods rednecks? I'm, I'm serious. That's what they're saying right there. That's the implication. Sorry if I offend anybody from Middleburg. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia. Parthians and Medes were from modern-day Iran. Okay, Mesopotamia is between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Basically, he just starts... And he starts going around Jerusalem, all the way around, east, west, north, all the way around. Both Jews and proselytes. A proselyte was somebody who was not born Jewish, but converted to the faith. They became a converted Jew. Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, again, that's languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May God bless the reading of his word. The day of the Lord. Good thing, bad thing for the world. In Scripture, let me rephrase it. In Scripture, when the day of the Lord is referred to, is it judgment or is it a homecoming? It's always judgment. When you go back and you look in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, it, when, when the moons turn to blood, darkness... Uh, the sun turns to darkness. It's God's judgment coming. That's a really important thing to understand about this text and about what's happening. But God memorialized the birth of what's about to happen here. The church is going to be born and He wanted it to be this supernatural thing that the people of Israel would witness. And so it happened on Pentecost, the time when people from all over the world would be there. Jews from everywhere were there. And we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit on this day. It's the first time that anybody had been baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit to where the Holy Spirit comes in and He never leaves. Prior to this, the Holy Spirit would only pop in and out to do and empower for certain tasks. But today, this day on Pentecost, in this text, the Holy Spirit would come in, people would be filled, which means they are yielded to the Spirit, doing what the Spirit wants according to the Word of the Spirit and the Word of the Lord, and they are empowered in a way that they have never known. And it uses... Uh, the word like a wind, it's the Greek word for blast or explosion, basically. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's not pneuma. It's, it's a different word, and it, it means like a blast. Something big's going on, and God wants all these people to know, and they do. They come running. Verse 3, he talks about tongues of fire. He talks about the, these tongues, the languages. They begin, you know, they begin speaking in these different languages. All these people, not just the 12, the 120 are there. The 12 are together, but the all 120 are there. And the Spirit comes down and baptizes all these believers, immerses them. Now, Passover was 50 days prior. And what happened is you have Passover, which we celebrate what? The, the, the Passover of Egypt but the blood over the doorpost, the sacrificial lamb that had to die to put that blood over there. And what you got to remember is the, the Old Testament feast were always a picture of something to do with Christ. 
They were a photo book of what was going to happen in the future, a shadow of what was to come. And so in the Old Testament, there were three major feasts. There was Passover, or the, the, the first, you know, first uh, feast. The second one was the Feast of Weeks, or also called the Feast of the Harvest, first Feast of First Fruits. It was seven weeks, or 50 days later, after, because after Passover, the very next day, they had a, another feast they had called, that was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was, the, it was really considered combined with Passover that time. And so it was 50 days later, you had the, the Feast of Harvest, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks. It had all those names. And then in the fall, you had what's called the Feast of Sukkot or Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, So those were the three major feasts. Every Jewish man, no matter where he lived in the world, had to come to Jerusalem for those feasts. Didn't matter what was going on in your life. Didn't matter. You had to be there. Now, like I said, the feasts were Old Testament pictures of Christ. So let me tell you what's interesting about the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. In that feast, it was unleavened bread, right? They had a bread offering of unleavened bread. What did leaven always symbolize? always and so that Passover and unleavened bread feast was a picture of Jesus he had no sin so there was no leaven but here's what's interesting about the feast of the harvest which was the Pentecost feast when when you brought your offering there you brought two loaves of bread and you know what they had leaven in it and it was the feast of first fruits the feast of the harvest. What did Jesus pray in Matthew? Lord, raise up laborers for what? The harvest? And here we're seeing the first fruits of that. And when they celebrated that feast, they didn't gather all the harvest then. That was just the first part of it. And so it was symbolic because it's got leaven in it. And we're sinful, right? And so... We are represented, the church is represented in that second feast. The first, the first harvest there, the first fruits of the harvest in that second feast. And that's what's going on. And it's on Pentecost. The Jews would have known about the Old Testament sacrifices and all the Old Testament feasts. But what they didn't know and what was a mystery to them was the church. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as a vine, as a family, a household, uh, a kingdom. But it was one ethnic group. In the New Testament, we see the church, which is a family, the bride. But there's something very different about the church in Israel. The church is all unified with Christ. We all have the same spirit. We're not one ethnic group. We're one spirit. The same spirit of Christ that is in me is in you if you're a believer. And so there's no second tier regenerations. How that spirit is displayed may vary, but not the amount of spirit in each person. So what's in Jay is in me, is in Brad. The same Spirit occupies us all. 
And you don't get more poured out if you spend more time in the Word. You don't get more poured out if you pray harder. You get the same measure, Ephesians 1 says. At the moment of salvation, we get that Spirit in us. And the filling of the Spirit is us yielding control of our body to the Spirit's leadership. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of... I believe erroneous teaching about that. Lord, just fill me. Lord, just fill me. And a better place might be, Lord, I repent of my selfishness. Let me be more yielded to Your leadership. That's the filling. People think that filling is some you know, ecstatic experience. And people go in and they hear incredible worship music and songs that move them emotionally. And oh, I I could just feel the Spirit. No, you felt emotion about things that your brain thought. Being filled with the Spirit means yielding control of your body to the one true living God to do what He wants you to do. And that, that, that's really what Paul meant when he talked about being filled in Ephesians chapter 5. And so, that's what's going on. The Holy Spirit indwells and makes every believer one. That's why Jesus prayed for unity. That's why it was so important to see unity. This is the norm. We belong to Him. This is not an experience we seek, guys. Uh, the, the baptism of the Spirit is positional, not experiential. It's really important to understand that. The baptism of the Spirit is something God gives us at the moment of salvation. We are reborn. The Spirit's deposited in us. And it's a, like Paul says in Philippians, it's like a, an engagement ring. It's a down payment. A it holds us. And that's why you can't lose your salvation. Because when the Spirit's deposited in you, you become one with Christ. You become one with Him. And the Spirit, in, in First uh, Timothy, uh, uh, or Second Timothy, when Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, even when you are faithless, he's faithful to himself. He, he's faithful. And so at salvation, we are simultaneously baptized and filled at that moment. We're baptized and filled. But later, we're commanded to be filled. The baptism of the Spirit is the placing of God's Spirit in believers, making us part of the body of Christ. This only happens one time. You can't be baptized in the Spirit multiple times. You're baptized once. But you can be filled multiple times. And that's why you see in the Scriptures, in Acts 4.8, it says Peter was filled with the Spirit. In Acts uh, 4.31, it says they all were filled with the Spirit. Over in uh, 6.5, it says Stephen, a man full of the Spirit. That means that they are yielding their bodies to the control of the Spirit. Our pursuit then is to be filled, not to be baptized. That should be our pursuit as God's children. Because that is practical. That means yielded to the Lord. And I just want to point this out, and then we're going to move on to the next uh, part. Is uh, In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, Be filled. 
Let the presence of the Holy Spirit dominate you. When that happens and you continually yield to the Holy Spirit, His power and control, guess what? You're going to have joy. You're going to have gratitude. You're going to have peace. Even in the midst of tough times, you're going to have love for others, self-control. You will have this indwelling desire to do whatever God wants you to do when you're filled with the Spirit. And in Acts 5, or Ephesians 5.18, that's what Paul's talking about. But Paul gives this same kind of laundry list over in Colossians 3. But instead of being filled with the Spirit, you know what he said? Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. So he equates being filled with the Spirit to being obedient to His Word. Not just having some emotional response to a song you may like about Jesus. And unfortunately, that has been really confusing for a lot of people. That and this whole next issue of of languages. And when we look at um, how God memorialized this, He wanted us to know this was a supernatural event. These guys were getting up and they were speaking languages of all these people. And that is very significant. But what it, it, it also represented is a unique um, transition of God's people into the church. In other words, over in uh, Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, when the word got out that, hey, Samaritans have started believing in Jesus. The apostles were dispatched. And when they went, they prayed that they might, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues there, but more than likely, they probably did because in the other two instances where the apostles were kind of endorsing and authenticating these people, they spoke in tongues. That's why people think today that if you're baptized in the Spirit, you're going to speak in tongues because of what happened in Acts 10 and Acts uh, 19. But again, this was very unique. It was a unique transition of Samaritans, Gentiles, and even Old Testament saints, people who were John the Baptist disciples in, in Acts 19. And so they, they were filled with the Spirit and the same things the apostles did over in Acts 2, they did. So it authenticated. And guess what? In Acts 1.8, what did Jesus tell them to do? Start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jerusalem was chapter 2. Samaria was chapter 8. Cornelius and the Gentiles, chapter 10, ends of the earth. And in Acts 19, you see Judea, the Old Testament. Saints, those people. And so, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul writes the Corinthians because they were abusing the gifts that to me appear to only be on the scene for 25, 30 years. They came. You don't see John writing about it in any of his letters or the Revelation. You don't see it in Hebrews addressed. Um, the, the whole issue of languages. You see it in Corinth because they were being carnal with it and they were seeking these ostentatious displays of it. And Paul addresses it. But here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.8. He says, tongues are going to cease. 
prophecy will cease. And I believed as a normative experience they did. I'm not saying God can't give somebody that gift, but he is not talking about unintelligible gibberish that you learn because somebody else mumbles and teaches you to mumble that gibberish. That's not what he's talking about in Acts chapter 2. Now, you go, where did that come from? Well, back in the early 1900s, there was a guy named Charles Parham who was an evangelist. He was a Methodist evangelist that heard about somebody speaking this unintelligible gibberish called tongues, that's what they called it, as a baptism of the Holy Spirit evidence. And so he began to bring that and apparently there were signs and wonders going on. And so he brought that and started, he wasn't even ordained in the Methodist church, he was more of an itinerant, but he started his own Pentecostal movement that later became the birth of the Pentecostal movement in America. So get this, for 2,000 years, you don't hear this really talked about as normative in the church. But in 1900, it started. And, and people began to, uh, and what he did is people were claiming to speak foreign languages early on. There were people claiming to speak Chinese and write Chinese that they took to people who understood and read Chinese and they go, that's not Chinese. They had people they were training to be missionaries that were speaking this gibberish. They go out on the mission field believing that they're speaking the language of the country they're going to and they couldn't understand them, so they came back. So what they had to do was redefine the languages as a prayer language. A secret code between us and God that Satan can't understand. This is literally what people have taught. I've been taught this. People tried to get me to speak in tongues. You just got to prime the pump. Say what I'm saying. Shamalama, 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 shamalama. I'm not kidding you. That's what I was taught. That's not what's going on in Acts chapter 2. But they used Acts chapter 2. It's what Charles Parham used. And people end up thinking the key to spiritual growth and an outpouring of God's power is this unintelligible speech. It's a sign. Ecstatic speech, a private prayer language, it was never part of the orthodox teachings of the early church or any church prior to 1900. Now you've got to ask yourself why. I mean, what, what's it there for? You see, in this text, there's a reason these people spoke in other languages. And I didn't know what it was until I studied this. But it's incredible when you do the research on this and you see, because see, you hear this senseless response I talked about. Why are they doing this? What's going on? Here's the interesting thing. When Jews were spread out through all the world in Rome and every other place, and by the way, Jews were in Rome prior to about 100 AD or 100 BC. They, they were... Uh, they, were, they were already spread out from the diaspora, right? From the, the great dispersion of all the Jewish people through Babylon and Assyria when they, they, they were all over the world. So when they got together and worshipped in synagogues, and by the way, there's an old synagogue over in Rome that predates uh, the time of Christ. When they went into those synagogues, how did they worship Jehovah, Yahweh? How did they worship Him? When they read the scriptures and when they had a text, what was it read in? 
Aramaic, wasn't it? Aramaic and Hebrew. When they talked, when they went in there, when they talked about God, it was always Hebrew. Always. This is the first time in history that a Gentile language has proclaimed the works of God. They've never heard it in another language. It has always been declared in Hebrew and Aramaic, which is kind of the, the you know, the, I don't know, what's the slang, not slang, it's more of a, Street language of Hebrew, Aramaic is. And so, yeah, the Jews from other parts of the world had never heard praise for God and His works proclaimed in a foreign language. So what's the point? Well, listen to what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he's talking about tongues. 14, 20 to 25. He says, brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written in the law. The law is always synonymous with the Old Testament. Or, or the, the word of God, which was for them. It was the, the Torah, the Tanakh, the prophets, the wisdom books. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Wait a minute. You mean God prophesied this? And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign for unbelievers, he says, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So you get what Paul's saying there? He's saying when people speak in tongues, it is a sign of what? What did he just say? He said that, but he said, by the lips of foreigners will I speak, and even then they will not listen to me. What happens when you don't listen to God? You don't get saved. It's judgment. It's a sign of judgment. Tongues was never a sign of blessing. It was a sign of judgment. Do you get that? Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 28 real quick. Deuteronomy 28, verse 45. This is the chapter on blessings and curses. Blessings for being obedient, following God. Curses for not. Verse 45. And all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments, his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. He's prophesying judgment. Flip over to Isaiah 28 real quick. And real quick, Isaiah 28, verse 5. In Isaiah, Isaiah is warning the southern kingdom of coming judgment. It's already come on the north. Assyria's done come down and wiped out the north. Now, he's warning the south. If you don't repent, the same things are going to happen to you. 28, verse 5. 
In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people. In other words, only the remnant are going to recognize God for who He is. And a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. They, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink and they reel in vision for they stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. He's saying what the priests are offering the leaders is vomit. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? He's saying, my people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. For it is precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. That is a warning of judgment. Tongues was a sign of judgment. Peter picks up on that, guys. And, and there's one more verse in Jeremiah 5, 15, real quick. Let me just read that. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Jeremiah 5, 15. He says, Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. So tongues happening on Pentecost here is God's judgment against His people. The language is going out to all the people not in Israel. They're proclaiming it in all these other languages from all the people that were outside. They're teaching about God and His great works and Messiah. And then Peter picks up on this and they're going, wait a minute, these people are drunk with wine. He goes, they're not drunk. This is what... Joel, he takes them to the text. And what I read, I read that to you. Joel is about the coming of Messiah. That passage is about coming of Messiah. It's about the gospel. The last days being characterized about Messiah. And if you go back real quick to Acts chapter 2, what he said was, the very last part of what he said was what? It's not too late. What did he say? The last thing he said in verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. And so, it's about the gospel proclamation, but tongues, the languages, were a sign of judgment. I never knew that. And everybody that tried to teach me how to speak in tongues tried to say, this is a bl the second blessing. It was never given as a blessing here. It was a sign of judgment to God's people. Peter takes them to the text and he tells them, listen, everyone who calls on the Lord can be saved. And he's about to go into the gospel. And let me just say this real quick. I believe every one of you here have received Christ, but I don't want to take for sure that you have. And the gospel is simply this, that God wants you and me to be in a relationship with him. 
a dependent relationship, one where his spirit lives in us, not the spirit of Adam. It's replaced with his spirit. But that only happens when you recognize that you don't have his spirit in you. You're self-led. You ignore his leadership. You rebel against his leadership. And because of that, we deserve death and we deserve eternal separation from God. But he sent his son Jesus 2,000 years ago to show us what it looked like for somebody to be yielded to his spirit 24-7 as they walk the earth. And we look at that standard and we're going, there's no way. I don't do that. I can't live like that. And we cry out to him because that's his standard for perfection to be in relationship with God. And we go, I can't. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. He said, I'm going to die on the cross and pay for your inability to do that. And I'm going to make it possible for you to be in a right relationship with God. The only thing you have to do is respond to the preaching of this message and say, I want that. I recognize I don't have it and I want to be in a right relationship. I want to be born again. I want the Spirit of God in me. And the Bible says that if you do that, then then... Not because you beg Him for His Holy Spirit. He baptizes you in the Spirit at that moment and changes you from the inside out. And the rest of your life here on earth is that Spirit conforming you to the image of Christ. That's the Gospel message. And He says, will you believe? Repent. Anyone who believes can. So Father, thank You for the reminder again of the great Gospel message of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for anybody here, Lord, that has never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They've never had the security, the peace, the joy of knowing that Your Spirit lives in them. That today, Lord, they would acknowledge their need for You and receive what You offer so freely to them. They would acknowledge they need you and they would receive you. And you would give them new birth and a new life in Christ and make them part of the body of Christ. For those of us, Lord, who are baptized in the Spirit already, but we are not walking in a filled state, I pray for us that, Lord, first of all, that we would acknowledge and repent of our Allowing the flesh, like Paul says, to take control. Cause us to do things we don't want to do and not do things we should do. And we pray for a renewed, Lord, um, surrender to your spirit. That you would, uh, through the reading of your word, the encouragement of the saints and the gathering of each other together, we would be encouraged to let your spirit lead us to live according to your word. And that we would put you on display in such a way that, Lord, people would be drawn to ask us, why are we different? And we can share the gospel message with them. And we would see your elect gathered. So we thank you for the way you uh, wrote about the birth of the church. And I pray that we would all be encouraged that that same spirit that was in Peter and Paul and all the apostles and the others there, can be in us. We love you. Amen. Amen.